So welcome to the Everything Marketplaces podcast, which is the audio version for our group chats that we have with Marketplace founders and leaders for the Everything Marketplaces community every week. So I'm your host, Mike Williams, or some of you might know me as your or me from social. And in today's episode, we have a chat with Emil Michael, who was previously the chief business officer at Uber. So Emil was commonly referred to as Travis Kalnick's right-hand man and was a chief business officer during an incredible period of hypergrowth at Uber from 2013 to 2017. Emil is also now a strategic advisor and investor to high-growth startups. So this is a really great chat with Emil where we got to learn more about what led him to initially joining Uber, his role as a chief business officer and how it evolved, some of his key learnings and insights from their incredible hypergrowth, discuss specific topics like marketplace expansion and building in highly competitive markets, and we also had a great group Q&A. So I really enjoyed this chat with Emil, and I know you're going to find it a great listen to the end. Now let's get into it. So, Emil, welcome to the uh, group chat, and this is a real treat to have you uh, join us here today. And wanted to start off by saying, you know, huge thanks for uh, taking the time to do so in advance. So, you have some real incredible experience at Uber during their hypergrowth run. So, I'm excited to uh, really dive into things here with you. Before we do, though, I think it might be great if you can uh, start off by sharing a little bit more in your background, though, for those that uh, might not know you. And then, uh, what led you to joining Uber? Great to be here too, and uh, I love the subject of your of your group here because. Uh, it's like a subcategory of text that's created like hundreds of billions of dollars in value in the world and like not enough people study it as its own thing in my view. Um, I got introduced to Travis, who was the founder of Uber in 2011. It was about five employees. And I it was like a black car service for rich people sounds pretty small. And... Uh, and like a like an idiot, I didn't join, but we were buddy. We became buddies. We, I liked him. He liked me socially. So we stayed in touch and uh, went on double dates. We were friends. And the light bulb went off when Uber launched UberX because that was a democratization um, of what ride sharing was. And it also opened up an enormous amount of supply of cars. So we talk, when you talk about marketplace, you have two or three sides of a marketplace. Cars and drivers was one side. And we went from black car drivers, uh, who's a small, which was a small set, usually in big cities that are high income, and you went to every car, Toyota, Corolla, and so on. That side of the marketplace got huge, and that kind of got it. Um, so... I joined him in 2013 with a very vague title. I was SVP of business and I had no direct reports. And it was one of those deals where like come in and, and, you know, and I was at 40 at the time. So I hadn't, it's it's not like it was my first rodeo, but I was so compelled by the idea and by Travis in particular, I said, look, I'll come in and we'll figure it out as we go. Um, and that was a start in 2013. We we're about 150 employees. By the time he and I left in 2017, so four years later, we we're 20,000 employees. We we're in 150 countries. Our valuation went from 300 million to 70 billion. We were in Uber Eats. Uh, so it was like an incredible, incredible ride in a really, really short time. So, I mean, that's really incredible just to, you know, hear about the early days of Uber and uh, at the beginning. So, of course, we all know the uh, sense of scale that it's at today. So you briefly mentioned your role when you first joined, but could you maybe uh, walk us through how that changed and uh, evolved as Uber began to really scale? Sure. So, so when I first joined, it was about 150 people. And that meant that we were in probably five or six of the top cities in the U.S. 
And the reason was that at that time, through that, you think about 2013, we physically needed employees in the cities because we needed to recruit drivers. And the way you would recruit drivers, like knock on windows, black car drivers, you would stand outside the taxi medallion licensing division to try to you know get people to sign up for for your uh to be a driver you'd throw parties and invite the who's who in town give them free uber rides it was like guerrilla ground-up marketing so those 150 people are really spread around the country recruiting drivers and riders for each side of the marketplace in each city right and, and uber is different because each marketplace is city-based unlike airbnb which has this global marketplace our marketplaces were city, city by city. Um, you know, the amount of time you were willing to wait for a ride, the amount you were willing to pay, depended on the city economics and the city supply of drivers and so on. Um, so that's sort of the state it was. We hadn't gone global yet. We hadn't raised a lot of money. Uber Eats was was not even in the picture. Um, and so I joined with this title, and the idea was that. I would be the face to the business community. And Travis would sort of, he, he wanted to be head of product and engineering. Neither of us wanted to do the public policy politics stuff because that was the, you know, sh shaking hands and kissing babies and dealing with regulators. Um, but probably because none of us were like, wow, that sounds like not fun. And I don't know if we'd be good at it because we're too aggro. But, uh, but he was product engineering. I was everything business. And that evolved to, me running fundraising, M&A, global expansion. I was GM of our China business. I built our Uber uh, for enterprise business where we sort of sold to large corporations to transport their employees around um, uh, over a very you know quick amount of time. And you know, he, I spent a lot of time in China. He spent a lot of time in China and India because those were two huge markets for us. Um, and that's sort of how it evolved. In that time period, we raised... $15 billion of equity. So we did round after round after round after round. We were in so many countries. We we're trying to invent new services. Uh, we were close to doing something called Uber payments because we were doing, you know, our essentially our own payments, everyday payments on so many different services. We're like, why don't we have Uber money? Uh, that's the thing I regret not finishing before, before we let that and the Instagram competitor. Yeah, no, you mentioned a lot of topics that uh, we're definitely going to jump into, you know, here. So I, I guess if we kind of go back to the earlier stages, so you mentioned at uh, one point as far as, you know, of course, Uber being like a, a local marketplace, right? Um, so depending upon the supply and demand, the kind of liquidity in the local markets. So, you know, what were some of those kind of like early challenges when you thought about uh, marketplace expansion? And could you kind of like walk us through like just, you know, maybe with a few examples of just examples of how nuanced the markets were? Yeah. So we, we had a globe in the office with green yellow and red pins that we put in there and the green ones were we think regulatorily we we're okay here yellow we're not sure red we know we're banned <laughs> and uh we said okay let's pick up the green and yellows first and let's let's see what what happens to the reds um and so we really were very intentional about every local market we had a pricing committee so we would say okay we're going into kansas city let's say because it's green there's like usually a hole in the regulations that make this mostly legal. And we say, okay, what is the uh, you know, GDP per capita in Kansas? What can people pay? What are the local cab fares? What is gas cost for a driver? Insurance. 
What is the average life of a car? Um, what are the what's the unemployment rate? How many people are working in low wage jobs where this might be a better opportunity versus not? And then we tried to develop our own thesis about what how to get to liquidity fastest there. And liquidity for a marketplace meant that there are enough drivers on one side and enough riders on the other side so that both parties were motivated to be in the marketplace. So you woke up to go to the airport, you had confidence that you can get an Uber ride within five minutes. On the driver's side is, could they go out and make enough money so that they'd want to do it again, right? Could they go out and make 50 bucks to, to buy their girlfriend uh, dinner? Could they, you know, spend a weekend working and so they could buy their textbooks for this, this next semester? You know, what are the things that they're trying to achieve and in how long could they achieve them? And we really studied that. And, you know, we weren't always right the first time around, but we deployed a pricing model and we recruited so that there was never too much of an imbalance between riders and drivers. Although the biggest problem always and still today with Ubers is just never enough drivers. There just isn't. Uh, the supply side always lagged the demand side, but we took very good care. And as we figured out this model in any Kansas City, we wrote a playbook and we gave that to the playbook for the person who's going to launch St. Louis. And then for the one who was going to launch Paris, and then for one who was going to launch Mumbai, and it evolved over time with nuance so that any new launcher of a city can start with 80% of the problem solved, basically. And that's how we scaled really fast. Yeah. And I, I guess for a little bit of context, could you uh, just you know share a little bit more as far as like when, when you mentioned uh, scaling very fast, you know, what, what that meant for Uber at the time too? So I joined in 2013. We were doing $100 million in gross bookings. I mean, it's total fares paid um, by a rider to, uh, to the system in January. By September of 13, so eight months later, we're that, we were at a billion in gross bookings uh, in 13. By um, September of 16, we were 10 billion. So we 10x in, in three years. And then Today, I think Uber is 150 billion. So you could see the, the stark kind of growth uh, in what that meant. And then, from an employee standpoint, to the extent that's another measure, we went from 150 to 20,000 in, in four years. Um, and it was largely because of this we need to feed on the ground thing. Now, you don't have to do that anymore, right? You, you could recruit drivers online because they're mostly online. But back in 2013, we gave them smartphones because they didn't have smartphones on average. And so we had long lines on each office where we'd hand out smartphones, program them. They'd come in for repairs. We had like iPhone repair guy sitting at the office, repairing phones for drivers, that kind of thing. So it was a very gritty manual. And, and we just took the pain. We were like, this is how you build a gritty real world marketplace business. Yeah, no, certainly. That's uh, that's really interesting to learn more about. You know, so I guess a, a somewhat related kind of topic that I wanted to uh, you know bring up as far as the competition, right? And as far as marketplaces where some markets might have like a winner takes all. You know, how did uh, you know being first or second in the market uh, impact Uber? Now I have some time to reflect on what that era of free money was like, right? In the from 2013 to 2021, we all lived in a zero interest rate environment, and so we would raise money we would spend it to subsidize 
uh, riders and drivers to build a marketplace until it was liquid. And then Lyft would come in or some other competitor abroad would come in. They'd do the same thing and they'd steal 30% market share the next day. And then we're like, oh, you know, we now have to spend more money to keep our market share. So long as money was free, the market share in the market moved. But our thesis was this. Once the chair, the musical chair stopped, meaning the money was not easy to get, the company with the largest market share was going to be the winner. And that winner was going to take mostly all. And you see that happening today. It's finally happened after a decade where Lyft has sort of been relegated to a 15, 20% market share player. It's very unpro- very hard to make profit at 15, 20% market share. Much, very easy to make profit at 80, 85% market share. And that's why I see Uber is now worth $120 billion, market cap, they're worth five. So the, the stark difference in the profitability in these marketplaces, if you can become the dominant player, it was just hard to prove dominance back in the day because everyone got money um, pretty freely. But those times have changed. Yeah, de- definitely worth noting here for founders that they, uh, times times have changed on that. So, yes. So you also uh, have you know the the unique kind of experience of you know being so early at Uber and uh, you know with the kind of expansion and scale, um, you know also seeing network effects, right? That uh, that marketplaces of course have. So, you know, could you maybe share more about, you know, when you saw uh, network effects kind of like start to form in the early days and maybe how that, uh, I would say just more generally speaking, uh, started to play out? Yeah. So I've always envied Airbnb's network effects because they are cross, uh, they're global, right? If you're planning a vacation in Paris, you go to Airbnb and and you have, they have their inventory and vice versa. If you're a Parisian planning a vacation in Los Angeles, uh, you go to Airbnb because of their selection. Uber wasn't like that, right? You you lived in a city, 80% of the rides in any city, at least, were taken by people who lived in that city. So they didn't care about liquidity in London. They cared about liquidity in, in you know, Miami. And so therefore, our, our, our network effects were local. And the way we thought about network effects was how many minutes to take a ride, what are the price per ride so that no one had to price compare against anyone else. They always thought we were the best option. And how do I get drivers to believe I'm going to give them the most rides and I had to create a loyalty point program so that they stayed with me and they preferred an Uber ride over a Lyft ride. And that played out over time and it's playing out now today. It's, it's you push a button, get a ride, Uber's faster. Um, cheaper or not, but on average, it's much cheaper than Lyft. So it's faster and it's cheaper and the drivers make more money. That network effect is what it's, what's really profitable, but it's very local. The only non-local network effect for ride sharing right now is the brand recognition. It's now you go to another country, you're like, oh, I, I assume Uber's there. Uh, I should use it. I don't even know who the local competitor is because it's a global brand, but it's a fairly weak network of global non-local network effect yeah no de- definitely uh, definitely worth mentioning as far as you know brand is a, somewhat of a network effect there and of course uh uber is probably one of the most uh, notable brands uh, when it comes to marketplaces so are there any uh you know i would say like specific learnings around uh brand building and uh, maybe even kind of like m- managing uh you know i would say like the public kind of perception of your brands uh with uber from your experience well i'll tell you this um we weren't very good at PR, obviously. Um, <laughs> and 
it was partly a, an artifact of the business we were in. We were running up against one of the most corrupt areas of any economy, not just the U.S. economy. Transportation, taxi medallions, um, that segment of any city's industry is, for whatever reason, highly corrupt and highly rent-seeking. In Japan, in Joburg, and in Jamaica, Queens, it just is. And the regulations were set up to uh, to repel competitors. So over time, the taxi medallion lobby had worked with the local politicians to create an incredibly protective set of regulations to keep competitors out, to keep prices high, to pay drivers really low, and so on. So we were breaking that. And when you're breaking that kind of system, you know, you you don't do it with uh, with you know nice conversations and persuasion. You have to sort of, you, you know, you have to really go at it really hard, and that makes you sort of the bad guy, right? Um, and I think that's not necessarily the case in other marketplace businesses. Like Open Table is a marketplace business. You don't have to be a bad guy to be Open Table because restaurant, you know, you want to go there to find all the restaurants in the city. Restaurants are happy to take their reservations. Maybe they don't like the price they paid, but it's a nice business. It's not sort of disrupting sort of a corrupt sort of element uh, of the economic architecture. We were. So uh, if I could do it all over again, I probably would have realized that there was a point where we won. And by winning, I meant consumers all over the world were like, I want Uber or Uber-like services. I deserve that. I, I don't deserve calling a taxi, having it never show up. I don't deserve getting in the taxi and not having a credit card machine. I don't deserve being black and not being able to go to Harlem because a cab driver won't take me. I don't deserve that. And we knew then that we were on the winning side of history and the politicians would all fall. We probably should have turned into a more nice corporate brand at that point. Um, <laughs> but I will say like the, the one guy and company I admire who's sort of worked at both sides with Airbnb and keep talking about them because think about Airbnb, like there's a way worse stuff that happens inside Airbnbs than in Ubers, right? People rent them for parties, like all kinds of camera, very weird stuff. And in Airbnbs, your neighbors hate you and they live in that city, right? So they have a lot of opposition, but they're like the nicest company in the world. You would never know from their branding that they fight incredibly hard regulatory battles have really gnarly situations. So maybe there's a way to do it that we just couldn't, but uh, but it was hard in this business. Yeah, no, I, I could only imagine. So I know I know as uh, marketplaces here, uh, you know, uh, as far as, you know, improving the status quo and, uh, you know, driving change and being somewhat disruptive, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot that kind of comes with it. But it's also worth noting that, of course, you know, Uber kind of paved the way in that. And, uh, you know, I even think now it's almost like we not only saw the kind of Uber for X, but, you know, the, you know, push the button and expect something on demand and the whole slew of kind of marketplaces that started after that. So yeah, sure did. So one of the other kind of topics that I actually uh, want to talk about too, and you briefly mentioned it earlier, but as far as, you know, Uber, um, you know, moving from uh, just being, you know, kind of ride sharing to, to launching Uber Eats and, uh, you know, taking a kind of bet on that. So could you maybe share a little bit more around, you know, what led to kind of Uber Eats and, uh, you know, maybe some like looking back, uh, some learnings from that? Yes. Uber. So one of the original visions uh, that Travis and I had was 
uh, we were going to be what we called an urban logistics fabric. And that fabric, meaning we had points, if you think about a caching network, we were going to have points of entry all over the city. And that point of entry maybe was a car or a vehicle of some sort. And it was going to transport people, things, food, groceries, and so on. And that was going to be the fungible element that moved things around. So the next biggest market after transporting people was was transporting food, we thought. Because if you remember, it was Grubhub and I forget the other one. Really tiny, right, as a, uh, as a business. Why? Because Grubhub relied on the restaurant to provide their own driver. So you're a great small pizza shop. And, you know, you have order volume that goes up and down. You know, you're kind of a little bit on tight string. You're like, I'm not going to hire a delivery guy to sit there because in busy times, he can't deliver enough. And in slow times, I'm paying him. They're not doing that. So our innovation was, we're going to bring the delivery. You just have to provide the food. Because we have these nodes all over the city, we're going to use our network to take the food that you have from your restaurant and deliver to somebody. So that was an innovation which was not obvious at the time. And it turns out that that allowed us to build a huge menu. And it also turns out that what do people want when they open a food delivery app? They want variety. They just, they want it. They was like, do I want Chinese? Do I want Indian? Do I want Italian? That is the number one thing they want is variety. And that allowed us to provide variety for them. And it was an incredible innovation because within two years, we got bigger in Grubhub that had been around for you know 15 years. Um, and then that should have been extended to grocery. Travis and I got booted out of the company by then and Instacart sort of had the mantle, but, uh, but that was the natural extension of bringing delivery to commerce as opposed to waiting for the commerce companies to develop their own delivery networks. Yeah, no, and uh, also too, uh, I wanted to mention, uh, you know, as far as like when it comes to marketplaces, a lot of times here is, you know, uh, earlier to kind of, you know, mid-stage uh, teams, you know, we're thinking about like the importance of, uh, you know, sequencing, right? And like if and kind of when to expand or kind of, you know, um, you know, layer on a new kind of service or category. So, you know, how do you think about that now, even kind of working with and investing in marketplaces? Look, in, in a world of infinite money, it was easy to parallelize these things, right? Again, back to make sure that people don't, learn the lesson today that was in it for, from a different environment back then. Um, that being said, I do think there are dangers in going too long for one with one business line past the point where you have product market fit and not starting to think about what the next iteration of the new business should be. Um, now, is it possible that the one thing you have product market fit out is so explosive that it just makes sense to do that and nothing else? Of course, there are situations like that, but oftentimes, you know, I think you see this with a lot of fintech players today, you know, not marketplace necessarily, but they like, oh, we're going to have a credit card for corporations, one product, or I'm going to have a banking account with a really cheap debit card thing. And they did well on that, but then all of a sudden they sort of sat, saturated that market. And then you're like, okay, well, what's the next thing? And it turns out for some of these companies, like, well, now it's doing expense management software 
And now that takes a year and a half to build and there's incumbent players. And so you don't want to do this serially too, too much. Um, if you have one product that has product market fit, if you don't have that, then yes, it's much more dangerous to be spreading your bets too wide, too early in this economic environment. And that's definitely, uh, that's going to be a uh, super helpful for, uh, for founders here. So, so of course you also have some, uh, really great experience when it, uh, not only comes to uh, team building, but you know, uh, executive hiring. So do you have any, uh, maybe any kind of tips that you could share with us here as, uh, as founders when it comes to team building and, uh, executive hiring? Yeah. I mean, I took recruiting as a very serious part of my job and it was so painful. So <laughs> I had to, I had to get in my mind. I did three interviews a day, 30 minutes each, five days a week for my entire four years at Uber. So that meant that I was, I did about 750 interviews a year for four years, 3000 interviews over four years. And sometimes I didn't even have a job opening. I just want to meet people, categorize them, figure out when I needed them. I knew who the best people in the world are and why I refined my inter interview questions. I, I created a machine on it. Um, and the reason is, is because, you know, it's so trite to say that the people are everything, but it's something that no human likes to do as a job is to interview. But if you could force yourself to make it part of your job and I figured out how to constrain it, then it's sort of a top of funnel thing. Like the more data points you put on top of funnel, the better quality you're going to get out the bottom. Right. So, um, and I made sure that people felt respected during the interview. I always followed up. I always said no quickly. If it was a no quickly, I'd ever wanted to be one of those companies that just flaked because I wanted to be the company that people knew they could come, come to, to get an answer quickly. And that made my funnel better, right? People were like, Oh, these guys are fast. They have an opinion. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. So I really took it as a core competency of my job. That's generally when it came to execs, it's very, it's, it's, it's harder in that execs you need to spend more time with because there's higher risk and higher reward. And execs by definition have gotten through life being charming and knowing how to do interviews. <laughs> so, so they're much more adept at, at the poll process. So your job as a hiring manager in that situation is to try to get underneath the gloss and find out who this person really is. What do they and their family want? Are they going to fit? Are they, they say they, they're going to fit. They say they want to work this hard. They say they want this kind of experience, but do they really? And no matter how good a job you do, the failure rate with hiring execs is still 50-50 because it's just a very high failure rate. And my only advice there is do your best up front. And if it's not working, usually it's not working you know, quickly. Uh, and it, usually you could tell within six months whether it's working or not. Um, and it's, and, and some of this comes from, you know, they've been at a big company or they've been at a small company that got big, their desire to do the work that a startup needs so wanes and they may not even know it. Right. Um, they, they don't, they've forgotten. They don't want to build desks anymore. They want to have papers presented to them and proposals and sit in rooms and make decisions. And that's not how it is at a startup, right? Everyone's, everyone's in the fight. So the fighting spirit, the ability to 
not have ego, especially when it comes to young people who've built a company. And that's really the, one of the big failure points. They come in sometimes and say, oh, I, I'm glad I'm here. I could teach the kids how to do X, Y, or Z. You're like, hey, these kids built this place before you got here, buddy. <laughs> you know, I, I would take a step back and, and uh, make sure you're adding value before you think you're, you know, you're going to teach other people how to do stuff. There's, so it's that sort of emotional maturity, high EQ, low ego that ends up being points of success factors when you, when you are looking for to bring in those first one or two senior hires as the company uh, gets its stride. Now, those are de definitely a great, might lead to a few questions when we get to the group Q&A here. So speaking of, you know, before we do, we have, of course, couldn't have a chat with you without, uh, you know, mentioning, uh, you know, fundraising and, uh, you know, not only what your, your role was like with that, but uh, also journey. So could you uh, maybe just kind of like walk us through from like a high level, you know, what that journey was like? Yeah. So I've done three, three other companies before Uber and I'd raised money for, for all of them, uh, but never at the scale that we did at Uber. And I'm a former lawyer. Never practiced law, but went to law school. I took a lot of finance classes when I was at law school because I was like, I don't want to be a lawyer, so I better learn something else while I'm here. Um, I did a lot of business development deals, like partnership deals. So I sort of purposely tried to have as broad a skill set as required. It turns out that raising money really, if you have, and you can learn all these things. Like I learned how to accounting on my own so that I understood how everyone, how VC firms were looking at our accounting. Uh, you know, I, I tried to understand everyone's perspective so that I was pretty functional in knowing how to sell something and what would resonate and what wasn't. And Travis also had a pretty methodical view about how to run a process. And so we together sort of bought, brought together what I thought was sort of a, an auction-like process with some EQ around the edge uh, edge to make sure that it was an optimal process. We called it the home show. So we would we literally stress on a presentation for four weeks. Like we were really like people were like, oh you guys, you know, just like waving money in the door. It's like, oh, we put together like 50 page PowerPoint decks, deep data rooms. We we're super upfront about our competition, where our weaknesses were. We're like, they're gonna find out anyway. So let's not BS anyone. Let's just tell everyone all the stuff. And and then we'd schedule three investor meetings a day, three hours each for two weeks, uh, maybe three weeks. And we just run through them. And then we'd have a week of due diligence. Then we'd ask for term sheets. And then we'd select a, you know, select a term sheet uh, and the composition around and move forward. And sort of in eight weeks, we'd have a billion dollars in the bank. And we told everyone up front what it was going to look like. And it looked like that at the end. So no one felt that they were burned uh, or not. Now, again, this was a zero interest rate environment. This was also the hottest company in the world. So we were able to do all that. So you don't always have the leverage we had to do that. Um, so that's why Uber is not the perfect example. But uh, but I want to at least give you those stories to let you know how how we did it there and to great success. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's really cool to, uh, you know, learn more about. Cool. So we're going to go ahead and uh, get into uh, some questions because I uh, promise that founders, we would, uh, we would do so here. That sounds good to you. Sure. Let's see. Hey, hey, uh, Noah, do you uh, want to jump on first here? My question is uh, regarding to going into market. 
Um, so what were the kind of the key factors that influenced Uber's uh, decision-making when going into a new market? I'll go deeper on what I said before is we did a lot of research and for us, it went down to the local level because there are local transportation levels, sometimes county, sometimes state, sometimes national, depending on the country. And we'd sort of do a deep dive into what we thought uh, that meant for our deployment in that country. Was it going to be easy, hard? What were the, how big the opportunity was, how small? The economics of that country mattered too. Like who was spending money in that country? You know, was it something that where there was disposable income, where they could trade uh, off from a train ride or a subway ride to an Uber ride? So it was a really pretty detailed analysis there um, about what we did. Um, and as a counterexample, Japan has great taxis. They run on time. They're clean. Uh, Japanese people and Japanese businesses are rule followers. So going in there, breaking the rules or taking, you know, or taking license with the rules with a population that doesn't like it with a system that kind of works, put that last on the list. It was the third tier, you know, part of the list. Um, Azerbaijan, some of these other countries where GDP per capita was low, they had gypsy cabs already. They had sort of like unofficial Uber already uh was also low on the list egypt was higher on the list because they kind of had this gypsy cab phenomenon but it was such a big city and people hated negotiating for every ride so we put a non-negotiation thing on every ride and that made it a good market so it was pretty it was a pretty detailed analysis and it was way more inexpensive to do that research up front and critical thinking and tiering of your opportunities for deployment among countries than it was to go and fail just because you didn't do the work. That was our philosophy. Awesome. That's a great question. Hey, uh, Danny, do you uh, want to jump on? Hey, Mia. Uh, Danny here. Um, just wanted to deep dive a little bit into um, Uber Eats um, that you already kind of touched on. So would, would love to understand um, like what, what insights do you have around kind of what needed to change in Uber's approach, whether that's launching a city or, or anything else? And maybe things that didn't necessarily work well, um, kind of from your approach at Uber to, to Uber Eats. Uber Eats was somewhat easier from a marketplace standpoint because of the fall blind. You could go to a restaurant and say, sign up. And they didn't necessarily care that you had one or 10 orders that month because signing up cost them nothing. Right. It's like, here's a free iPad, put it on your wall. If an order comes through, fulfill it. If it doesn't, no problem. You got an iPad that just sits there. So we could build up the supply side and then before we marketed to the demand side. So we're always having to balance. And because humans want to see variety, we're like, let's focus on getting variety. Then we can spend our money on marketing and people open the app and go, holy cow, there's a lot of, there's a lot of options here. Um, so that was sort of one key difference. One key thing we're wrong about was that we thought drivers who transported people would also want to transport food. And that would be the synergy. We're like, remember I talked about this sort of network of nodes around the city. That thesis was wrong. Turns out people who want to deliver food are much less social. They don't want to talk to the people in the back seats. They kind of want to drive, pick up, drop off. They also 
um, we were more tolerant of them having crappy cars because no one's sitting there. So for them, the cost was lower because they had a crappy car. They didn't have to have a fancier car. So you were accessing a different type of driver um, who, who sort of like had a lower cost um, basis and didn't like, you know, it's not didn't like people. I don't want to make them seem like monsters. They just preferred to work on their own, right? Um, and so the overlap in driver base was like 10%. It was amazing to me. It was like shocking to me that people who didn't want to do one did the, the other. And people think it was smell in the car. Like, again, it was some of that, but it was really just different type of people. The number of women who applied to be Uber East drivers was like three times the percentage of women that applied to be Uber Rise drivers. So maybe it was a safety thing there. I don't have to have a male in my back seat. I could just deliver. Um, even though you're delivering to people's houses, you're like, I don't get it, but maybe they could drop off and just leave. So those were some of the the key differences um, between those. Uh, DoorDash is a much more formidable competitor in Uber Eats than Lyft was to Uber Rides. DoorDash is very innovative, and they did some things that, while when Travis and I left, Uber Eats was way bigger than DoorDash in the U.S. Now the flip has happened. Um, they went into the suburbs faster. They had a much more ingenious way of creating variety on their market. So they would they would sign up a restaurant without the restaurant even knowing. They go on their website, download the menu, put it on DoorDash. Someone would order it. They'd have a DoorDash person call the restaurant, order the stuff, pay retail for it. And so they had variety like day one. They opened a city in like one day. And then at the end of the month, some sales guy would go to a restaurant and say, hey, we, we delivered you, you know, $1,000 this month. Don't you want to sign up? And they're like, yeah, I guess so. So they, they would call it over the top. So they did like very ingenious things like that, that Dora and the team after we didn't do. So, um, you know, those are some lessons from the differences between those businesses. Let's see. Dimitri, do you uh, want to come on? So you raise your hand. I have a question for you about uh, economics and economists and marketplaces. So Uber is very unusual in having economists show up really early uh, to work on both kind of policy stuff that you were talking about with re the regulation and so on, but also on product pricing and uh, experimentation. And if you're sort of advising a marketplace now, where can what's kind of the earliest stage where you think economists can add value, and where um, where would be kind of that that area within the company? Economists. For us, like you said, they had a few different functions. Probably the most important function they had was trying to prove to the cities that we were a net good for the city, meaning we reduce congestion, we reduce car ownership, we reduce the need for parking in downtown urban areas. Um, and to combat some of the you know counter notions, which is, no, you did cause traffic. In fact, you caused more accidents because Uber drivers don't pay attention or you had more, you know, assaults happen in the city. So he, he was mostly used in the policy realm. In the pricing and surge and all that, we less used economists and more used algorithms and finance folks. It was much more of a trading floor on pricing and on policy is much more of an economist sort of thing that was used from a policy uh a policy uh, standpoint if that made sense so 
Well, you know, look, if you're in the marketplace business, you don't have regulatory, everyone loves you, and you don't have to have an economist to churn out policy papers, so that's great. <laughs> but, but, but if you, I guess if you're in a position where you have to, you do, but it's not, it's not something I would seek to do unless you must. Cool. We're going to try to squeeze in one, one, one more here if we can. So, hey, hey Michael, do you, do you want to come on? Liquid? Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, first of all, you're such a wealth of information. So thanks for taking the time to do this. Sure. Um, quick question. In the early days, the drivers, the supply side, can you think of an example where you wanted to change their behavior, influence the way they were like, say, used to doing something, quote, the old way, you're trying to get them to do it the new way. And you had to either like enforce it or maybe incentivize it. Does anything jump to mind? Well, the the star system that we had, five stars, was a very effective people forget how how people how much that was part of Uber's brand promise in the beginning. Um and how we use that to either coach drivers to be better, to to take them off the system to reward them for having so many five-star trips in a row. And consumers took them seriously. Now, mostly you walk out of an Uber, you have five stars, you don't even think about it. In the beginning, people took this stuff really seriously. And it was a really valuable indicator of what we could do. So let's say um, the driver, you know, um, you know, and an Uber black didn't open the door for a customer, right? Back in the day, the customer would say that was three stars. And we try to get as much as we could. The customer would say, why? He's like, well, he didn't close the door for me. So then we would say to the driver anonymously, you'd do better if you close the door for people in your star rating, right? And they cared about the star ratings because that entitled them to certain bonuses and, you know, certain classes of uh, achievements, so to speak. Um so we definitely use that system we, along with money and rewards, psychic rewards, financial rewards to try to change behavior among drivers. And, and look, people complain, oh, the, the, the car didn't smell good. It was too smelled like those, those trees that are too strong and too much cologne. I mean, you name it, <laughs> riders will tell you what's happening with drivers. And frankly, driver, drivers learned over time to say customers were rude or they slammed the door was a big complaint. They puked in my car, you know? So you end up collecting a lot of data because of the frequency of transactions. And you you often can act on that to hopefully make both sides better. Awesome. That's a great last question. Th thanks, Michael. So, well, th thanks, Emil. This is a, wow, this is a, such a great chat. And, uh, you know, we really appreciate uh, taking the time to join us here today. So, of course, uh, pa paved the way for us all here in the world of marketplaces with uh, with Uber. So it was, you know, really cool to uh, to learn more about it, you know, kind of going back uh, to the beginning and uh, diving into some of these topics here. And uh, once again, I really appreciate, you know, taking the time to join us. And I guess, uh, you know, last but uh, not least here. So I'd, uh, I'd like to kind of wrap up the uh, chats with uh, with the question. And uh, that's, you know, if you could uh, go right back to before you uh, joined Uber, you know, what would you uh, tell yourself about uh, maybe marketplaces more specifically? I guess I didn't think about the word and concept of marketplaces too much before Uber. Um, the, the the one I did think about was OpenTable um, because it had, it had sort of achieved this dominant position where a restaurant had to have it. And because consumers 
were like, they were getting so many consumers through it. And I tried to think about that. And now in retrospect, and so when I get to where I thought about it a little bit less of a marketplace, although I did feel like this supply and demand dynamics are awesome. And this notion of it's snowing out and yeah, it's going to cost you more, but the driver gets paid more and that's going to create a better situation. Um, I thought about it in raw kind of supply demand uh, sort of concepts and how, you know, maybe it was too capitalist, how you can make money in these different ways all the time. Whereas in New York at four o'clock, whether it's raining or sunny, you can't get a taxi. <laughs> like it was totally inefficient, but Uber is creating efficiency so people get what they want. Um, and it is interesting that that you see something like Open Table that has now never invented beyond its core. It could have been toast. It could have been done so many supply chain things for restaurant on the backside. It could have been the beginning to a delivery platform that allowed restaurants to manage or inflow outflow. And it just sat there and, and kind of did nothing. Um, so there is sort of back to one of the questions you ask is like, when is it important to start your next sort of evolution of products? And that's a good example of a company that didn't, that never did. Right. Yeah, no, that, that's a great example to, uh, to to wrap things up here. And uh, time for kind of a quick plug. Where can we uh, keep up with you at? I'm at Emil Michael at Twitter. Uh, that's uh, that's the best place. I'm in LinkedIn, but I like most people, it's a lot of a lot of ch ch chaff in the wheat there. So <laughs> Twitter's where I kind of post and DM and and hear people out. Sometimes I'm on CNBC uh, talking about the sharing economy every now and again, every month or so, uh, but. Yeah, those are the best places to hear me, and and it was great to meet you all. And I'm glad you're you're excited about this sort of segment here, and um, look forward to seeing you out in the world doing some cool stuff. So thanks for listening to this episode and making it all the way to the end. As mentioned, our podcast is the audio version of our virtual group chats that we do for the Everything Marketplaces community with marketplace founders and leaders every week. If you're a Marketplace founder or team, you can check out the community and request to join us at everythingmarketplaces.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please also leave us a review. You can also find the video versions for all of our group chats over on our YouTube by simply searching Everything Marketplaces. See you next time.